Amen. Wonderful truths to be reminded of about the Lord's church and his goodness to his church. Turn with me, please, to um, Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses today. The King who reigns in righteousness. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of God. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed. And the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are your people, called by your grace to be under the reign of the king who reigns in righteousness. We've gathered here to hear your word. We pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would speak your word to our hearts with power by your Holy Spirit as only you can for the glory of your name, for the good of your church that we might be more like Christ, our righteous King, that we might follow after him more closely. And perhaps those who are here who don't know Jesus would be turned and would come under his good rule to know him and love him and hear him and see him. Father, we need you. Speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite shows when I was a kid was Gilligan's Island. You know, it's kind of a silly show. I look back on it and realize, why did I like that show? Um, they go for this three-hour tour on this little minnow uh, boat, and it gets storm-tossed and lost on this desert island. And it's amazing how many things happen to them and how many things they build and how many things they come up with. And... And, and yet they can never seem to get off the island. Just a little, just a little hole in the boat, and they can't seem to fix that. Anyway, it, you know, there's plan after plan where it seems like they're going to get off the island, and then something happens, it falls through, and they just can't get off the island. And it's, uh, it's frustrating. Well, on a much more serious note, 
Sometimes when you're reading the Old Testament, and you know, it's February, and every year I read through the Bible again, and I'm on a different type of reading plan this year where I'm reading Old Testament and New Testament alongside together, which is good because years when I've just read straight through the Old Testament, you just, you're just so desperately waiting for the New Testament to come because it feels like you're, you're trapped and, and you can't get out. And it, it, it feels like this story of uh, almost like a cruel kind of roller coaster ride because there's these glimmers of hope. There's these promising people who show up. There's these dramatic events that happen. And it seems like, okay, we're going to get things going in the right direction now. And then all of a sudden, you know, something happens and things turn and it just goes crashing back down again. Every time a wise or faithful or promising ruler or leader or prophet or king is raised up by God to bring light and hope to the nation, something happens, and that dashes the hopeful expectations of God's people again. Moses, uh, the great man of God, most humble man uh, in the world, led the people of God faithfully, and yet, in a moment fit of anger, rage, he struck the rock and was not able to go into the promised land with the people, but died on the mountain looking into the promised land. Joshua leads the people into the promised land, but then, you know, we have the sin of Achan and that whole mess at Ai, and then, and then when Joshua finishes his, his time of helping them conquer the land, he gives this great stirring speech, choose you this day whom you will serve, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And all of Israel says, we want to serve the Lord, we absolutely want to serve the Lord, yes! And you're there in Joshua 24, and you're like, finally, they're getting it! But then we're told as soon as Joshua and the elders of his generation had all died, they forgot about the Lord and they went after idols, right? And the judges come and the judges go and some of them are good and some of them are frankly not all that great. David comes along as the man after God's own heart, the man that God has sought out, and he goes through years of fleeing Saul and suffering persecution. He finally becomes king and you think, yes, finally we're here. And then he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then his son Absalom leads a rebellion, and then he conducts a sinful census. You're like, Ugh. And then Solomon comes, the wisest man who ever lived, and he prays for wisdom, and God commends him in praying for wisdom. Oh, how great that is! But this wise, wise man is so foolish that he takes all these foreign wives and allows them to bring their idols in, and he ends up turning away from the living God. And his heart turns to idols in his older age. And we've seen this again and again, right? The two best kings after David and Solomon were Hezekiah and Josiah. They led these thorough reformations of the people of God. But Hezekiah, we'll see that when we get to him at the end of his reign in chapter 39, which won't be that long. And he's he kind of is hard-hearted and calloused when he's comes to the end of his reign. And Josiah is wonderful, probably my favorite of all the Old Testament kings, but he's convinced he has to go out into battle and face off against Pharaoh Necho, and God says, don't do it, you're going to die. And he's like, I, I got to go do it, and he dies. And we come and we're just like, where is, where's the hope? We, we have a sense of what God's people need. They need someone who's going to come along and be a king who is, who's truly righteous, who will not just be mostly okay, right, but truly righteous, and lead a thorough reformation of God's people, and then who won't die, right? Because even the best of kings, things fall apart when they die. Well, we come here to Isaiah 32, 
and we get the promise that God will provide what the people need. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. This promised king, he's going to come, he's going to reign, he's going to reign in righteousness. He's going to have princes under him who are going to rule in justice. The king, in other words, will be unimpeachably righteous in his character. And he will have in his administration of his government those under his headship, princes, who will be careful to carry out justice, who won't be corrupt and self-serving. This king is promised. Now, we know ultimately the king who comes is Jesus. We know that because we're living, you know, on this side of things. But in Isaiah's day, when Isaiah 32 was first spoken, they didn't know who this king would be. And they wondered, a king of righteousness. Now, what's interesting is king of righteousness is a name in the Old Testament. And if you had just said in Hebrew, king of righteousness, you would have essentially said Melchizedek. And people would have said, oh yeah, Melchizedek. I remember that guy. Because way back in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis 14, in the life of Abram, Melchizedek is a guy who shows up He's, his name means king of righteousness, and he shows up in a very unusual place in a very unusual scene in the Old Testament. Abram and Lot have separated by Genesis 14. Lot chose the nicer ground in the valley of the Jordan that was well watered and had great pasture land. He goes there, and he settles down in Sodom, and he's living a good life in a corrupt area, and the kings of that area go to war against other kings, and they get defeated. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding areas, they're defeated in battle, and prisoners of war are taken, and among the prisoners taken is Lot, Abram's nephew. And so Abram decides he needs to figure out how to get Lot back. And so he takes all the men of his household, 318 armed men, and they go into battle against four kings, who have just defeated five kings in battles. This is a not really good odds, 318 men, to march out against four kings. But they go to battle, and God gives them the victory. And they defeat these kings, and they take back all the plunder, and they're returning from battle. And as they return from battle, Abram is greeted by Melchizedek, who we're told is the king of Salem, which many people think was Jerusalem. But Salem also is Shalom, peace. He's the king of peace. He's the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace. We're also told that he is a priest of God Most High, and so when Abram sees him, he offers a tithe of all the spoils to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses Abram in Genesis 14, 19 through 20. He says, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And that's all we see of Melchizedek, just a little bit at the end of Genesis 14. And if that's all there was of Melchizedek in the Hebrew Bible, perhaps most people, when you said king of righteousness, they would not have instantly said, oh yeah, that Melchizedek guy. But that's not the only place where Melchizedek appears. He's also, David wrote a psalm about him. 
And it's actually one of the most important messianic psalms. It's Psalm 110. And it was a psalm that was well known to be a promise of the Messiah. So well known was Psalm 110 as a promise of the Messiah that Jesus himself quotes Psalm 110 verse 1 when he explains that the Messiah cannot possibly just be the son of David since David in this psalm calls him his Lord. This is Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this psalm would have been really well known in Israel. They would have sung it many times, and they would have, they would have associated it with their messianic hopes and expectations. And whatever else they thought, when Isaiah gave the prophecy that's in Isaiah 32, behold, a king will reign in righteousness, they're thinking, oh, he's talking about Messiah. And oh, yes, Psalm 110, David's psalm, talks about Messiah and how Messiah is actually going to be uh, the Lord, who's going to rule on the day of power, but he's also going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the New Testament, Hebrews 7 picks up on this truth. And we read in Hebrews chapter 7, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. So when Isaiah says, king, of, of king who's going to reign in righteousness, I do think that for the people who hear this, and I do think God intends for us to connect this to the Melchizedek promise of Psalm 110 and the Melchizedek figure who shows up in Genesis as a type of Christ, as a picture, as a foreshadowing of Christ. And so we know that the king who will reign in righteousness is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he is both king of kings and also our great high priest. He is both the king and he's the priest. And this is important because Psalm 32 doesn't, or Isaiah 32 doesn't just talk about a king reigning in righteousness, but also says princes will rule in justice. So who are the princes who rule in justice? Well, in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, we have 24 elders who represent the elders of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're shown worshiping him around the throne and saying to him, to the Lord, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests 
to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. So a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ as your king and as your high priest, the Bible tells you that you are a prince and a priest in the kingdom of God. Do you think of yourself that way? If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, if he is yours and you are his, if he is your head and you are in him by faith, he is the king who reigns in righteousness and you are in Christ a prince and a priest in the kingdom of God. Now, if you're a woman and you're squirming, you're like, wait a minute, a prince and a priest? Okay, it's a metaphor. But yes, the Bible says you are sons of God, and you are a prince, and you are a priest in the kingdom of God. If you're still squirming a little bit, it's okay. We guys have to deal with the fact that we are the bride of Christ. So metaphors cut both ways. Uh, but it, it, it's, a, it's a position of privilege and a position of responsibility. It's a position of privilege and a position of responsibility, and it is directly connected by Jesus with the Great Commission. What did Jesus say in the Great Commission? In Matthew 28, what he says is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I am the king who is reigning in righteousness. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, of all ethnos, of all peoples. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we are sent out with the authority of Jesus to make disciples under the authority of Jesus. In, in John's gospel, Jesus puts it even more simply than that. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And so when we hear about the princes who rule with justice, we need to see, that's us. That's us. We are called to be Christ's ambassadors, Christ's representatives, the body of Christ, the people of God in this world. And listen to what is said. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, and the scoundrel said, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. Now, if you were to say, if I were to ask you, who is your hiding place from the storms of life? you would probably say, hopefully say, Jesus. Who is the rock of ages who hides you in his cleft to shelter you from the judgment of God as well as from the trials of this world? It's Jesus. 
right? But we who are in Christ are called to be like Christ. And so just as Christ is our hiding place, our shelter, just as Christ is the one who said, you can ask of me and I will give you streams of living water to refresh your soul. So we, as the members of the body of Christ, as ambassadors of Christ, should be extending that same grace to one another and offering it to the world. We need a place to hide from the wind and from the storm. What does that mean? Well, the biggest wind and storm we need to hide from is the judgment of God that we deserve because of our sin. Why is it that Moses needed to be put in the cleft of the rock in Exodus when the glory of God passed by? He needed to be put in the cleft of the rock because if he, as a sinful man, had looked upon the glory of the Lord, he would have been utterly destroyed. So we need to be sheltered from the intensity of the holy glory and wrath and justice of God. And that's the first thing that Christ hides us from. And when we are offering the gospel to the world, that's the first thing that we're offering to the world, which is to say, there is a God, and he is holy, 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 and he is just, and he is going to judge the world, and he is going to judge everyone in the world, and everyone will stand before him and have to deal with him at the end of this life or at the end of the age, whichever comes first, and what will you do on that day? How are you going to stand before a God who is intensely, perfectly holy and just? And you have sinned against him over and over again. You need a shelter. You need a hiding place. You need a refuge. You need a Savior. And that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is not, first of all, a life improvement plan to help you, you know, get along better in this life, have a happier marriage, have better behaved kids, have more balanced finances, you know, have more satisfaction and joy in life. That's not what it first and foremost is. First and foremost, it is salvation. And we need saving from God himself, from the justice of God that we deserve. And Jesus hides us in himself. And when we go out and take Jesus to the world, that is what we should be telling them very plainly, is that they need one who can hide them. Now, once we find our hiding place in Jesus, he also shelters us from distress. We do run to him. We do hide ourselves in him when things are overwhelming, when things are too great for us, when things are beyond our ability to comprehend or control when we don't know what to do. We go to Jesus. We cry, help, Lord, save me, be with me, help me. And he does because he loves us and he blesses us. And we are to love and we are to bless others in his name. Verses three to four then show us as we're doing this, as we're both receiving this from Jesus and as we're extending this to one another in the church and to the world, this hiding place, this shelter, this refreshment. As we're doing this, what does it look like? What happens? What happens to us? What happens to those who come to know Jesus? What happens in our lives? It says, then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, 
and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. What does that mean? Do you know there are people in this world who can see just fine and yet who are completely blind? Do you know that all of us were by nature? We were born, our eyes were opened, we could see. Over the first few weeks of our lives, we learned how to focus and be able to see things more clearly and distinctly, but we were as blind as could be to spiritual realities, to the truth of God, to who Jesus is, to what we need from him. And blind people who see and yet are blind need to be able to see with a second sight. Way back at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, when God gave him the vision that would sustain him through years of ministry, back in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord lifted high in the temple, his train of the robe filled the temple, and, and the temple shook at the sound of his voice, and he was overwhelmed as he heard the four living creatures cry out continually, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. As he heard all of that, he was then cleansed by God and he was commissioned by God. And if you remember his commission from when we were in Isaiah 6 a while ago, or if you're familiar with the passage, so often when we hear this passage, when we think about this passage, we, we generally tend to end with verse 8, which Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And we say, the end, yay, isn't that great? If God calls you, you should say, here I am, send me. But if we read on, what we'll see is that Isaiah wasn't called to an easy ministry. He wasn't called to a, yeah, Isaiah, they're going to line up for your best-selling book. They're going to be, no. God says, okay, you want to go? Here's what you're going to go to. Isaiah 6, verse 9. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I'm confident that Isaiah never forgot that commission that he was given when he saw the Lord in the temple. And so now years later, we don't know for sure how many years later, but Isaiah 32 comes years later. As he's been engaged in this ministry faithfully for years, he now hears this news from God and passes it on in this oracle that a king will reign in righteousness. And when this king reigns in righteousness, the curse will be reversed. <laughs> the curse will be reversed. Whereas before they were seeing but could not perceive and they were hearing but could not understand, now their eyes will not be closed and their ears will give attention. It means that we are given eyes to see spiritual things and a willing desire to hear the truth. 
1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Or, to put it more simply, the way that John Newton put it, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And that only comes through the reign of the king of righteousness. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. That means that when we're called by the Spirit to understand and to know spiritual truth, when we, when we see Jesus by faith, when we taste his goodness by faith, as we'll do in the Lord's table in a little while, we want to understand and know deep in our hearts and then from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Always. Parents, always. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Ugh. Did I have to say that out loud? Okay. And so we want to understand and know with our heart so that we can speak distinctly with our mouth. Let me try to be as plain as I can be. And let me ask you a question. Have you come to the place in your life where you have seen by faith that Jesus is your only salvation? That he alone, as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners, is the only one who can save you from your sin, can give you eternal life, can refresh your dry and weary soul, can keep you for all eternity? Have you seen that Jesus is the one you need? And have you come to him? Have you come to him confessing your sin? Have you come to him seeking eternal life in him? Have you come to him and said, Lord, yes, you are Lord and you are my Lord. Are you trusting in him? If so, are you eager to hear more from him? And are you eager to understand in your heart more of him? You see, there's a kind of faith that you can profess because you don't want to go to hell. And you can profess a faith that says, okay, I've heard from my parents, I've heard from the pastor, I've heard from the Sunday school teacher, we're sinners, God's holy, if we have to stand before him and be judged, and we don't have a savior, we're going to go to the bad place forever, and I don't want to go to the bad place forever, I want to go to the good place, so, okay, Jesus, save me from my sin, I don't want to go to hell. Okay, but that's not saving faith. It's not. Saving faith says, yes, Lord. You are my Lord. You're my only hope. I'm coming to you. And it shows itself in the fruit that says, Jesus is, is he's the king who reigns in righteousness. He's the shelter from the storm. He is the living water. And, and I can, if I have him, I can share that with others. I want to know more about Jesus. I want to hear more about Jesus. I want to know Jesus better in my heart. Now, of course, we always struggle with sin, and there's times when we're lazy, and there's times when we're distracted, and there's times, but, but the heart of saving faith says, I want Jesus, and I want more of Jesus. And it also says, as I know more of Jesus, I want to tell others about him too.
That's what it means when it says the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. I want to be able to tell others about Jesus. Distinctly. Not hesitantly and half-heartedly and stammeringly. I want to be able to tell other people distinctly from the heart. So, right now, in your heart, in your mind, with the Lord, ask, do I really know the Lord? Do I want to know more of the Lord? And do I want to tell others about the Lord? And if you find yourself doubting there, talk to the Lord right now and say, Lord, I, I want to know you. I want to know more of you. I want to grow in you, and I want to be able to tell others about you. Because that's what we're called to be. This is what should characterize the society of people who live under the reign of King Jesus, finding shelter and refreshment in Jesus, extending that to one another, seeing the truth in Jesus, listening to his voice, growing in our knowledge of him, and sharing that growing knowledge with one another and with the world. And then finally, verse 5 in this section transitions us from the characteristics of the followers of Jesus to the characteristics of those who don't follow Jesus, who resist and rebel against his reign. It, it shows us what the alternative is. If you're going to say no to Jesus, right? So for those who say yes to Jesus, for those who are under the king of righteousness, for those who are blessed by God's grace to be called princes and priests in the kingdom of God, the fool shall no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. Within the kingdom of King Jesus, the fool and the scoundrel should not be honored. They should not be promoted. Why one of the things that just bothers me the most, just disturbs me so deeply, is when I see someone who is obviously peddling Christianity for profit. You know, they're selling the people of God on something because they actually fit very well the description of the scoundrel that we're going to hear about in a minute. And that is just wrong. That is not what God calls us to do. And that person should not have a place of honor. They shouldn't have a television broadcast. They shouldn't have a best-selling book. They shouldn't have crowds of thousands gathering to hear them. And so it disturbs me deeply that within the kingdom of God, under the reign of King Jesus, that God's people will be led astray in these ways. And that's one of the things we should pray for. We should pray for the church to have discernment and wisdom and loyalty to Christ. Because within the church, it should be that the fool is no more called noble and the scoundrel is no more said to be honorable. And then listen to the description of the fool and the scoundrel. They're introduced in verse 5, but they're described for us in verses 6 and 7. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. The fool and the scoundrel, it may sound like harsh terms, but they're simply two terms to describe two different types of people, the only two types of people in the world there are that are not following Jesus, that are not under his kingship. If you're not under King Jesus, if you're going to say no to him, the Bible says you can be a fool or you can be a scoundrel. 
And it really depends on how actively you are plotting and scheming wickedness. What is a fool? A fool is someone who says, I will not listen to the voice of God in Scripture, but I'm going to speak from my heart what I think about God. You ever share the Bible with somebody in a very straightforward way and say, this is what the Bible says, it says this. And they respond with, well, what I think about God is, and they say something that's different from what's in the Bible. The fool speaks folly. He utters error concerning the Lord. It's because they're saying no to what God has revealed about himself. And they're going to speak out of their imagination, and they're going to be wrong, and they're going to be tragically wrong. And then if they're not going to pursue God, what are they going to pursue? Well, iniquity, ungodliness, selfishness in whatever variety of form it takes. If you're going to say no to God, you're going to say yes to something. If you're not going to speak the truth of God, you're going to speak something. And ultimately, going down that path leaves you unsatisfied. To leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. There is nothing, listen to me, kids, children of all ages, anybody under the age of 100. There is nothing that the world promises on its menu of promissory options that actually satisfies the human soul. None of it. You kids ever get real hungry? Like you're really hungry and you grab junk food? You eat like cookies or you eat like chips or you eat like... How do you feel like 15 minutes later? Ugh. I'm still hungry, now my stomach hurts because I ate stuff that was junky, right? But I'm still not satisfied. If you're still so young that that doesn't happen to you, just wait, it'll happen to you. It's the temporary, it's like the temporary quick fix. You think, oh, I just need a hit of this sugar or this junk food. The world sells us things that, that look like they might be refreshing. Mostly it's just marketing. If we try to satisfy the hunger and thirst of our souls with anything other than Jesus, we remain hungry and thirsty and unsatisfied. When your soul is hungry, you don't need me time. You need Jesus time. And you need to take time to go and be with Jesus. The scoundrel, like the fool, rejects Jesus and seeks the things of the world instead, but the scoundrel is more actively and deviously wicked. He has evil devices. He's planning wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. So the, the scoundrel is the leech. He's the con artist. He is the profiteer. He's the one who's saying, here's all these people running around chasing after things that I can sell them and make a lot of money off of it. Oh, they might be poor. That's all right. I'll get them to spend their last dime on this. I'll get them to go in debt to get this because I'll get rich. So that's the way the world works. The fools chase after foolishness 
and end up getting used and abused by the scoundrels. The scoundrels are the predators, and the fools are their prey. And if you chase the things of the world thinking that they will satisfy you, you're setting yourself up to be exploited by the scoundrels. They will gladly take your money. Just don't come crying to them when it doesn't actually satisfy you because they don't care. But, verse 8, back to the people of God. Verse 8, but he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Earlier, I challenged you to consider whether or not you're really trusting in Jesus and listening to his voice and seeking to share his love with others. Well, if you are, then that makes you the noble one who's spoken of in verse 8. And you will both plan noble things and you will stand on noble things. Now, what does this noble mean? What does it mean, noble? Well, it's a word that means... um, Honorable, generous, and helpful. That's what it means. Things that are honorable, not things that are disreputable, not things that are underhanded. Things that are generous, things that look to give to others, not get from others. And things that are helpful, things that help others. And so, and so honor noble things, to plan noble things and stand on noble things is to plan to carry out a worthy cause on the basis of worthy ideals, honorable ideals, a heart of generosity, desire to be helpful, and then to act on that and to plan those things out. So one measure of a man or woman who belongs to King Jesus is that they plan to do good, to be helpful, to be generous, to act honorably, and stand on noble principles, honorable values as they do so. John Wesley put it this way. I love this quote from John Wesley. It's very challenging. Do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. Jesus, in Matthew 25, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, he put it this way. When you saw me hungry, you fed me. When you saw me naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you comforted me. Do you remember how the sheep respond? The sheep respond and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or in prison? And he said, whatever you did to the least of these brothers of mine, you did to me. These were not people who were thinking, I'm going to earn brownie points with Jesus. I'm going to score spiritual merit badges. They were just seeing hungry brothers and sisters in Christ and feeding them. They were seeing lonely brothers and sisters in Christ, and they were visiting them. And in so doing, they were serving Jesus. In other words, if we name the name of Jesus, and we call ourselves Christians, and we say we serve the King of of righteousness, and and we're listening to his word, and we're treasuring, and we're wanting to grow in our knowledge of him, and we're wanting to speak that to others, then that should evidence itself in a generous spirit, in helpful actions, in honorable conduct, all in keeping with and building on sincere and God honoring values. We should cherish life and love and kindness and generosity, actively seeking to offer shelter and refreshment to those who are in need. Scoundrels see people in need 
and seek to exploit them. Jesus said that his disciples would see a thirsty person and offer them a cup of cold water in his name. Feed the hungry, serve the poor, bless those who are unaware of who Jesus is by telling them the truth of the gospel. We minister to all those kinds of needs. And that's the natural outworking of a heart that loves God, loves people made in his image, loves his people especially. We do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith because of how good God has been to us and because of the change he's made in our hearts. It's my prayer that God would, by his word and spirit, keep working in our hearts and in our church community so that we would become more and more this kind of people, the kind of people who are noble people, who plan noble things, and who stand on noble things for the glory of Jesus in the world and for the blessing of his people and for the spread of his kingdom, for the king who reigns in righteousness and brings us in by his grace, tells us to bring others in also. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and for your gospel. Thank you for your son, the king who reigns in righteousness. Thank you for your church, the kingdom of God on earth. Thank you for this church, Forest Hill. Thank you for the generous, kind, tender heart that you've given to so many of your people here. Grow us in that more and more. Help us to see how we can love each other, how we can serve each other, how we can comfort each other, how we can come alongside each other. We want to know you better, and we want to grow in you. We pray that you would do this work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.